0: I want to preach a short message here today. Well, I don't know. Short's different to different people. So forget I just said short, because some people that'll be five minutes, other people 50 minutes. You know, I'm just going to land somewhere between those, I'm sure. So uh, let's go to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. I'm reading the New Living Translation just for ease of understanding. It says, Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth. Let's all say that name together and have fun. Mephibosheth, some of you haven't even tried, you're like, forget it, (laughs) who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan, that's his dad and his grandpa, had both been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and she fled, but as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. So he was not crippled before dropping, but after. This morning, I want to preach on this title. Broken, but invited. Broken, but invited. Let's just pray. God, thank you for every man, woman, and child who is in this place or watching online right now. We're grateful. Jesus, I know that your word's alive and powerful, so I don't have to pray that you touch your word. It's already alive, but touch me because I'm the one trying to deliver your word, and I'm not perfect. And and so I need you to to, to speak through me, and not just through me, but touch every heart and mind here so that there is receiving of your word, and that we could respond to that word in just a short time here before we leave. God, we love you, and we thank you for the opportunity to praise and worship you in your name. Amen. Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Israel's king Saul. The boy was five years old when his, his dad and grandpa both died in the battle with the Philistines near Mount Gilboa by the Jezreel Valley. Uh, learning of the death of his sons in battle, Saul took his own life. Now, it was customary back then that when a ruler was defeated, that You would go in and you would kill his entire family as well so that there would be no lineage who could take, lay claim to the throne. However, we find in 2 Samuel 4 that Mephibosheth survives. I'm going to be shocked if I make it through this entire message without messing up that name once. So far, I'm batting a thousand. But his nurse obviously knew the custom. Because when she hears that they're dead, what does she do? In a panic, she scoops him up and realizes that, hey, once Saul and Jonathan are dead, they're going to kill the whole family. Because a new king can step in. And anyone that's a part of this lineage is now in danger. So... Get him out of here. She scoops him up and in haste, somehow, she drops him. And this was not a little drop because we read that it was so bad that a five-year-old is now crippled. He cannot walk anymore because of the severity of this drop. Tragic. But you fast forward years later and Mephibosheth, now he's not dead, he's alive. And he's growing and he has a family of his own. But his daddy's best friend growing up, before when they were still alive, his daddy's best friend David starts, who is now the king of Israel, King David, starts asking about any remaining family members of King Saul. 2 Samuel 9.1 says, one day David asked, hey, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, anybody in the vicinity of that question is probably thinking, if you lived in that time, oh no. He's feeling threatened. This is what other kings do in that century. They're going to go find all of the remaining, remaining lineage of that king and kill him. So that there's no threat. Why? Because a king didn't want to just secure his own throne. He wanted to secure the throne for the next several generations. So that my son and my son's son and my my great-grandson, my great-great-grandson, that the, the lineage in my family can stay on the throne for as long as possible. So, but this was not David's agenda. David, the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart. God referred to David as the apple of his eye and Jesus later when he's born, he's known as the son of David. David was really even viewed by many as a type and shadow of things that come in Christ. So go to 2 Samuel 9.1 again. <clears throat> One day David asks and he says, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Why? He says it. He says, so I can show kindness to that person. Why would he do that? He tells you, for Jonathan's sake. Now, the Hebrew word for kindness there, right up there, speaks of covenant loyalty and faithfulness. This same word, hear me, frequently describes God's commitment to his people. That would have been a surprise to the culture of that day. Because, hey, you're not going to kill them? What do you mean you're going to show kindness to them? But it wasn't a surprise for a man who had God's heart. David uses his use of the word here, echoes the language of covenant that he makes with Jonathan, Mephibosheth's dad. Back in 1 uh, Samuel chapter 20, verse 14, they make a covenant. He says, if you may treat me with the, the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. This is what, this is what Jonathan says to David when Jonathan's dad, Saul, is looking to kill David. And and Jonathan says, hey, treat my family with this faithful love. Even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. He already knew David had already been anointed king. He knew David was the future. Saul was trying to fight against God's plan. Jonathan accepted it. He said, David, make a covenant with me. Treat my family with faithful love. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David and said, may the Lord destroy all your enemies. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. Now, when you go back to the other verse in 2 Samuel, that makes sense when David says, hey, hold up a second. Is any of Saul's family still alive? Because I made a pact years ago with my, my friend Jonathan that I would always show kindness. And so I want to find whoever's still alive, and I want to show kindness to that person. So David says the reason, and, and we read now in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2, he summons now a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba The king said, yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied and said, yes, one of Jonathan's son is alive, but he's crippled in both feet. Why would that matter? Well, you're going to see in just a few minutes, because that's how he was identified. That's the crippled guy. Where is he? The king asked He said in Lodabar, Ziba told him at the home of Mekir, son of Emiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Mekir's home. Think back to when Saul was king and David was a shepherd boy playing an instrument and watching over sheep and killing lions and bears. Saul, when he was troubled with spirits, would summon for David from the field, and David would come into the palace and play his harp, and it would soothe Saul. Notice, Saul is calling someone to come and minister to him. David is now calling someone to minister to. When you're a person after God's own heart, you don't always just look for someone to minister to you. You look for opportunities to minister to someone else. So years later, Saul is dead and gone, and and David summons Saul's grandson. And when you are that person, he looks for someone to minister. And so David calls for Mephibosheth. And in verse 6, it says, his name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Think about that. A man who had been dropped and is crippled in both feet, managed to get himself down. Do you know how much effort that must have taken for him to get himself down on the ground and and bow before David? And instantly he says, David, I am your servant. He, I think, wants David to know, don't kill me. I got a wife now. I got kids. I am no threat to your throne, David. That's really essentially what he's trying to say right there. I am, even Ziba, as identifies himself as, I am your servant. Why? Because i I think based on cultural history, they knew that most of the time when you get summoned to the king, who is, has taken over for your dad or your grandpa, you're about to die. And so these guys, he gets on the ground, he says, David, I am your servant. And they're trying to profess their loyalty. Why? Because they knew that based on their past, their blood type, their family lineage, that they were now entering before the throne at the mercy of the king. And David sensed their fear. And he says in verse 7, he says, don't be afraid, You can tell when someone's afraid, right? He says, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all of the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you'll eat here with me at the king's table. Man after God's own heart. Most people kill that lineage. David says, I'm not just not going to kill you. I'm going to give you everything that belonged to your grandpa, and I'm inviting you. See, in spite of his fear of death, though, and the fact that David probably had that right to kill him, David apparently shocks Mephibosheth. Ah, I almost, there you go. He says, don't be afraid. I get excited when I read that, because these are not just historical stories. The Bible is so powerful that it all points to something deeper. I get excited because I get to thinking about some of the things that God said to us in his word. Look at Hebrews 4.16. He says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I don't know about you, but have any, has any of you ever come before Jesus and you have messed up? You have sinned. You have messed up. And I don't know about you, but I don't always walk in with boldness. Hey, it's me, God. I am here again. I need to talk to you right now. We walk in right like the dog with the tail between the legs. God, I'm sorry. I know I don't deserve to be here. But scripture says, hey, he says, you need to come boldly when you become before my throne of grace. We don't have anything to worry about, but that's not all he also tells us. The Lord also tells us, who as the church, we're known as the bride of Christ. He tells us that he also wants us to eat at his table. Look at Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard again, John the Revelator, he's writing this down. He says, I heard again what sounded like the, the shout of a vast crowd. A mighty roar as the ocean waves, a crash of loud thunder, and he said, Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Capital L, that's referring to Jesus. And his bride, guess who that is? That's us, that's the church, has made herself ready She's been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the white linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the lamb. And he added, these are true words that come from God. We as a church are told by God to come boldly to obtain mercy and grace. And he desires for us to feast at his table just as we read about With King David. Now Mephibosheth still does not feel worthy. Verse 8 of 2 Samuel 9 Mephibosheth bowed respectfully. Again, it sounds like, and he exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show kindness to a dead dog like me? The king just said, Don't be afraid. I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to give you what Saul had. You're going to eat at my table. And he responds to the offer of grace like many of us do. Who am I? I don't deserve that. I'm a dead dog. Sometimes it's hard to accept God's grace, isn't it? And you know you didn't do anything to deserve it. Matter of fact, you lived life, made choices that might be contrary to what he's told us. But see, the king doesn't care at that point. He just says, will you eat at my table? You see, it appears that once he became crippled, his name had been changed. First Chronicles 9.40 it gives us a, a chronicle, a, a list of lineage, and it says, Jonathan was the father of Merabael. Merabael was the father of Micah. Mephibosheth is another name for Merabael. Mephibosheth is a nickname, meaning mouth of shame. Probably referring to his physical condition. That's why when they say, Ziba, is there any lineage left? And he's like, yeah, Mephibosheth, but he's crippling both feet. Imagine that. And so Mephibosheth is the nickname, meaning from the mouth of shame. You see, no crippled animal could ever be offered as a sacrifice to God. No disabled priest could ever stand before God with people's offerings. A crippled person was an outcast according to the law in the Old Testament. Mephibosheth's condition probably disqualified him from the crown, the throne. He had lost his heritage, and Ziba says he's living in a place called Lodabar. Guess what Lodabar means? Lodabar means land of nothing, So Mephibosheth is living in shame in a place with nothing to offer. So his name is changed. And forgive Mephibosheth for all of his negativity, maybe even a bit of depression. After all, he went from being the next king of Israel to getting dropped and paralyzed, living in a land of nothing and people calling him mouth of shame. Now you can understand why he says, "I'm I'm a dog. What do you want with me? All I've ever been known by, by everybody, is the dude who's just full of shame, who's worth nothing, living in nothing, and going nowhere. Why would you as the king ask for me to sit at your table? And so he looks... He struggles with that, and I think many of us struggle with that same thing. When we say, God, you're saying I can obtain mercy and coming before a throne of grace. You're saying you want to eat with me, and I'm invited to this feast in the last days, and, and you're going to come back for your church, the bride of Christ. But why? Why me? What do I deserve? I've been living in a land of nothing. I've made mistakes. I don't have a future. I'm incapable of moving forward on my own. Things have taken from us. Our family name isn't that strong. And we just don't feel like, you know what? I don't have too much to offer the king. So when our king tells us not to have fear when we come before the throne. We can struggle with that. When our king invites us to his table and says, I want to dine with you, I want to have a relationship with you, we may struggle to understand why someone like him would be interested in someone like us. But Jesus, he sheds light on this. When he's still walking this earth and he tells a parable in the Gospel of Luke, in a time when the lame were still not accepted or viewed with any value, even in the beginning of the New Testament. Jesus talks about inviting people to a dinner and how so many would reject his offer. But look what he goes on to say in Luke fourteen twenty one. The servant returned and Jesus is telling this parable, the story he says, and tells his master his, that, that nobody wanted to come. And his master is furious. He says, go into the streets and the alleys of the town. And who does he say to invite The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, the outcasts of society, the people that no powerful person in their right mind in that day would have invited to his table. Jesus looks, and he tries to invite every single person. It does not matter where you've been, what you've done, what you've gone through. He looks at you and says, I see value, and I've saved you a spot at my table to come and dine with me. So today, you might be broken. You might be hurting, you might be poor, you might be discouraged, but the king wants to make a place for you at his table. Why? Because he sees royalty even when you don't see royalty. Folks, just because others have dropped you and are they don't see value in you any longer, the king looks at you and he remembers the bloodline from which you came. And when you are baptized in the name of Jesus, you take on the blood of Calvary. And now that blood that flows through your veins, it's royal, it's rich. Even when others say, I've dropped you, I don't see value in you. I don't think you have a future. God looks and says, oh, yes, you do when you take on my name. You got a place at my table any and every day of the week. And that story ends in 2 Samuel 9, 13 when it says, And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, Lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Listen here as I close this message out. In the Old Testament, there was a place called the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant. Put that picture up right there. that Ark of the Covenant, the the high priests would go in and they would go through ceremonial worship. They'd come to an altar of sacrifice and then a brazen laver. And they would enter into this holy place where there was was a a table of showbread. and, and And there was this inner court. But then past that, there was a veil that separated God's people from his great awesome presence. And behind that veil was this piece of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. And God says in Exodus, right? You see where the wings of the angels outstretch? That area right there was known right below the angels' wings was the mercy seat. So the priests would kill an animal, and they would bring the blood, and they'd wash at the labor, and they would, they would bring that blood, and they would pour the blood of the innocent animal onto the mercy seat of that Ark of the Covenant. And the blood would gather there in the middle, and it would atone for the, the sins of the people, push the sins off another year. But it was really also served as a cabinet, that in, in that ark, underneath that mercy seat, there were three things that were crucial to Israel's history. There was Aaron's rod that budded, the tables of stone, and a pot, and, and manna, showbread, and a pot of manna. What does this point to? Well, it's, Aaron's rather butted, it points to God's power and the manna, his provision and, and the commandments, his law. You can stand to your feet right now. But what is so powerful is the Talmud. The Talmud, it, it's, it's a book, it's a collection of writings that cover the full gamut of Jewish law and tradition. So it's not in scripture, but this is the, these are the, the writings of, of Jewish historians all gathered up in a book called the Talmud. And in the Talmud, you know what it states? It states that in that cabinet, in addition to Aaron's rod, in addition to the pot of man, in addition to the, to the tables of stone. If you don't know the story, when Moses had gone up to get the first set of commands... He came down, and God's people had built a, a false God. they were worshiping this false God, and Moses, in his anger came down, and he took that first set of tablets, and he threw it, the Bible says, and destroyed the false, brazen image, the golden image. So that, that first set of commands, it was shattered. it was broken. So Moses had to go up the mountain and get another set from God. And the Bible talks about, you know, that, 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 that set and Aaron's rod and the, and the table of the pot of manna, that's all in there. But you know what the Talmud states? That it was not just the intact set of commands that's under there. But that all of the broken pieces from the first set are also under there. What significance does that have? Because there's a powerful message just in that alone. That under the blood, there is a place, not just for the holy and intact, but also for the broken. That underneath the blood. There is a place not only for the holy and intact that have their lives together, but it's also for the broken, that when your life, when you come under the blood, underneath that mercy seat, you have not been rejected by the Lord just because you are broken. You are in a holy place when the pieces of your life are placed underneath the blood And so I invite someone today as we close this service to just begin to find a place to pray at an altar, to begin to find a place to pray where you can begin to respond to God. No matter even if you feel like your life is intact, we still need to be under the blood. If you feel like your life is in pieces and shambles, you need to be under the blood. There's an invitation from God where he says, hey, you might be broken, but I want you to know I have a place at my table for you I have a place at my table where I am inviting you and if you've never taken on that blood if you've never been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ We'll slide these doors open. There's clean, warm water, clothes to change into. You can repent of your sins. You can be baptized in his name. And he's saying, hey, come to my table. Come to my table. Pull up a seat. I have saved it for you. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to be afraid. Oh, I can't go before the king. The king wouldn't want anything to do with me. That's a lie. That is a lie. The king is saying, I desire you. I've been looking. David was looking for for Mephibosheth. He was looking for him. God is looking for you. Thank you, Lord.